but yet it was this petite curly haired queen who stepped up and said, no, I am going to be a mother of all children of Greece. I'm going to help the children. I'm going to save the children. And she did. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am so happy to be joined by Yvette Manessis Corporon, author of the novel, Where the Wandering Ends. And I know there are a lot more talented writers out there and incredible writers out there, but I think the difference maybe between me and them is that tenacity, and I, I kept going. Yvette Manassas Corporon is an internationally best-selling author and Emmy Award-winning producer. She is the author of When the Cypress Whispers, Something Beautiful Happened, and Where the Wandering Ends. To date, Yvette's books have been translated into 16 languages. She currently lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband, two children, and the sweetest little white lab you've ever seen. Well, let's start with the history of the Greek Civil War. It seems to me that it's a history that very few Americans know much about. So can you give us a history of the Greek Civil War um, and, and how it relates to your novel? Of course. So my book is set, my book Where the Wandering Ends is set during the Greek Civil War um, and specifically on the island of Corfu, uh, which is where my family is from and where I spent lots of time as a kid and as an adult. Um, and, you know, the Greek Civil War touched really every corner of Greece uh, in the most challenging and difficult of ways. Um, and when I was researching this book and I settled upon this time, I was really shocked to find out that more people don't know about the history of the Greek Civil War, or really anything about the Greek Civil War. Um, it was really one of the, if not the darkest moment in Greek history. Um, the timing is, it was immediately after World War II, um, from about 1946 to 1949. So the rest of the world and the rest of Europe were sort of celebrating, right, you know, the joyous era of peace coming on. Uh, and it was a celebratory time all across the rest of Europe. But Greece was really plunged into the throes of this horrific and brutal war where it was the communists against the monarchist government um, and civilians and children used as pawns in between. Um, and it's just it was a, a, a brutal time, a time of brutality that was really kind of unprecedented um, in Greek history. Um, and when I learned about what happened, I just knew that it was something that I wanted to focus on and sort of bring attention to. And one of the most difficult aspects of this time frame of the Greek Civil War was what happened to the children. Um, the children were really used by pawns 
between many say were used by pawns, I should say, between the communists and the monarchists, um, each side uh, setting up camps in order to, you know, according to their propaganda, save the children of Greece. Uh, the communists set up camps and they basically emptied villages in the north and sent the children away to camps behind the Iron Curtain. And many of these children never made it back home to their families or to Greece ever again. And on the government side, Queen Frederica, who was the queen of Greece at the time, she saw what was happening to the civilian population who was really just, you know, if they weren't physically um, in the midst of the conflict, there was famine throughout the country. So everybody was really affected and thousands of children were left orphaned. So Queen Frederica saw the need to really help the youngest generation. And she set up children's villages in order for the orphaned and the impoverished to have a place to go and be educated and be fed. Uh, and she's really seen as saving a generation of Greek children. Um, while on the other side, the communist took by some numbers, as many as 38,000 children um, out of their homes. And as I said before, some never to return again. So it's kind of a fascinating time. Um, and, you know, there's so much still left to be explored. I hope I at least kind of bring the story to the forefront and people can learn a little bit more. Definitely. I think that's really important. And, and I want to get more into the children and the children's camps. But before that, I have some questions around the political situation because it seems this must have been a very pivotal moment in history leading into the Cold War. And I know America at some point did send a sort of a, a precursor to the Marshall Plan, sending funds to Turkey and Greece so that they could avoid falling into communism. Can you talk about um, the political situation and how America was involved? You know, one of the reasons I was drawn to this subject is because, you know, I, I love to read, right? Like so many of us and history through fiction, I, I love learning about, you know, things, areas of history that I had no, no idea about through fiction, as we all do. Um, and I love reading different books from the time I was a child. I remember reading All the Children Were Sent Away about when I was about, you know, 10 or 11 years old about the kinder transport of World War II. And then as an adult, um, you know, I absolutely loved Orphan Train, right, about the um, about the orphan trains during the American Depression. And then when I started learning more about the children who were trapped in the middle of this conflict of the Greek Civil War, I realized there's like, like a glaring omission in, in literature. Why, why hasn't this been explored? You know, it's said that nearly a, almost an entire generation of children were lost. Um, some died of starvation, some were killed in the conflict. Some, as I said before, were sent behind the Iron Curtain to communist children's camps, many never to return again. So it was a devastating era. And, you know, the littlest and most vulnerable Greeks were, by many accounts, the most affected by the conflict. Uh, and I just felt it was important to shed a light on that moment in history and, you know, bring the awareness to what happened to this generation of children. Because it's it's unbelievable to me that it's not something that's known or discussed. Um, and I think one of the reasons is it was such a difficult moment in Greek history. Um, it was so painful. Um, you know, my last book focused on the Holocaust survivors um, and the silence of survivors once they got to Israel, many not telling their families how they survived 
uh, or even, you know, where they were during the Holocaust because it was just too painful. And that seems to be a theme that I found here also with the children of the Greek Civil War, not just the children, but the adults. The Civil War was so devastating and deadly and had such repercussions. Um, you know, families were fractured, some forever, some monarchists, some communists, and these families were fractured and never to come together again. Um, and when you look at all those elements um, and the pain that was caused, many modern Greeks still you know, do not like to talk about this moment in history because it was so dark, it was so difficult, it was so painful. You know, and this is modern times. This is immediately after World War II when they should have been celebrating. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why this subject was so, um, so, so important for me or kind of, you know, kind of piqued my interest to try to delve into and at least tell part of a story uh, and hopefully inspire people to learn more about it. When it did pique your interest, and when you did, you know, when you were inspired to to write this story, um, was it right away that you knew you wanted to write it from the perspective of children? I knew that. I knew that there was a story to be told there. I mean, there there are many stories in this book. Uh, you know, it's the the main characters are Katerina and Marco, who are two childhood friends who are separated um, during the Greek Civil War and make a vow to return to one another and to their tiny village on the island of Corfu. And I just thought that while there are so many stories of mothers and fathers and, you know, but the children really kind of spoke to me the most because, as I said before, they were the most innocent and the most vulnerable and, you know, really used as pawns by many. The communists not only would take the children, sometimes forcibly rip them from their mother's arms and take them to these camps. But sometimes when the mothers refused to give up their children, they would shoot the mothers and take the children. Entire villages were emptied by the truckload. Um, and also when they weren't taken forcibly, they were lied to. These parents who really had nothing, you know, they were these mostly Northern villages um, bordering uh, bordering Albania, you know, really in the most the most impoverished regions of Greece, these families had very little, if anything, to begin with. Everything was then taken away, and then you have the communists rolling into town and telling them, you know, the only way that your children will survive this war is if you give them to us. Let us take your children. Let us keep. Let us keep them safe for you. And many of these families were never to see their children ever again. So, you know, it was just. I knew that there was a lot that I wanted to explore there. Um, and I knew that also that these stories really had repercussions for generations to come. Um, you know, some of these children never made it back to Greece. Some of them never were reunited with their families again. And some of them were able to, but only as adults, when I think it was in the in the 1980s that the Greek government allowed some of these uh, now adults entry back into Greece because they were seen as as traitors they were seen as as you know as sympathetic to the communist cause even though these kids basically had no say in, in in what they were told or where they were taken but they were seen as sort of pawns in this in this horrific uh, moment in history and it wasn't until the 1980s that the government allowed some of them to come back into the country uh, and again you know 
what happened to this entire generation of Greeks, what happened to their families, what happened to the families left behind who thought their children were lost forever. There were just so many themes that I wanted to explore. And uh, I hope that, as I said, I hope that I've at least shed a little bit of a light on a really, really difficult moment in Greek history. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you speak so, I guess, energetically about it, um, simply because it is was such a horrible period of history. And, and as we mentioned earlier, we, we know so little about it, many of us, and um, it's just shocking to hear, to just learn about it now. And, and, I, and I guess that's one of the benefits of historical fiction. It, it brings things like this you know, to life. Um, so thank you for putting that, that, that story out there. Oh, of course. And the other thing too is, is again, one of the reasons why I think so little is known is because the Greeks tend to not really discuss this moment in history. Um, you know, it's kind of, the civil war is still kind of discussed in hushed tones because it was so painful and the repercussions are still being felt today. Um, and it's because of that, that, I think so few people know outside of Greece. It's just, it's not something that was sh- that is shared or discussed openly. Uh, and then also, you know, when you look at Queen Frederica and what she did, um, you know, it's unbelievable. Here's, you know, here are the men, right? You know, a very patriarchal society, right? You know, the king, the men, the fighters, the partisans. But yet it was this petite, curly-haired queen who stepped up and said, no, I am going to be a mother of all children of Greece. I'm going to help the children. I'm going to save the children. And she did. While the men were killing each other and and you know, and so many innocents around them, it was a petite, you know, curly-haired, blue-eyed queen of German descent, by the way, who stepped up and said, I will be a mother to all the children of Greece. And she stepped in and created these camps that saved thousands. Hey listeners, this is Colin Mustful, founder and editor of History Through Fiction, and I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about The Sky Worshippers by F.M.D. Myad. The Sky Worshippers tells the story of Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire, but it's told through the eyes of the foreign princesses who were conquered by the Mongols and forced to live as queens to the Mongol Khans. It's a really fantastic novel that brings to life more than 100 years of history in a way that's both gripping and emotional. Perhaps my favorite part of the novel are the short stories woven in between the main narrative. These shorter chapters are eloquent and poetic and give the history from the perspective of those who were brutally overtaken during the Mongol reign. It's a great novel and it's really well researched and I'd love if you checked it out. That's why right now you can get $5 off the Sky Worshippers if you buy it in our online store. Just go to historythroughfiction.com store and use promo code PODCAST at checkout. That's promo code PODCAST. I know you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks so much for listening, and now please enjoy the rest of the interview.
Can you talk a little bit about your own um, background and maybe was this ever brought up in your own family or, or can you relate to it in, in that way at all? Sure. I mean, I'm very grateful in the sense and appreciative and lucky in the sense that my family was one of the few who were not fractured, who were not, um, I had no family members that I'm aware of on either side who were lost during the Greek Civil War. And I think that there are not many Greeks or people of Greek descent who can say that. So in that respect, we're very lucky. Um, But I think my kind of interest in the Greek Civil War kind of stemmed from my grandmother, my grandmother on my mother's side. Um, She lived in this tiny little mountain village uh, in the north of Athens. And while the communists did not overtake her village, she was just still south of the the northern border. Um, She was an absolute pro-monarchist. She, you know, in her little village home, when I would go visit her, she always had a framed photo of King Paul and Queen Frederica in her home. And she adored the royal family. And um, she would tell me stories about Queen Frederica and how she was so grateful and, and, you know, what an incredible woman she was um, because of her actions, because she stood up because of what she did to save the children of Greece. Um, she, Queen Frederica would actually go visit the like war ravaged villages. She at one, you know, a couple of stories have her actually, because the roads were just so destroyed by fighting that she rode a donkey into the towns to go visit the children that were, that were, you know, basically starving and left orphaned and huddling in, you know, in schools together um, with what few adults were left there to take care of them. Uh, and my grandmother loved telling me these stories. And I was fortunate enough also in a crazy kind of, you know, convergence of events, I actually became friends when I was working as a young journalist in New York. I became friends with Queen Frederica's grandson, um, Nicolaus, uh, Prince Nicolaus of Greece. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but we happened to meet uh, at work and we became great friends. And I shared with him my grandmother's adoration of his grandmother. Uh, and we really, um, everything just kind of came full circle to me uh, in, in those moments of like, wow, you know, my, my family comes from nothing. Um, really, they were, my grandmother was illiterate, um, you know, no education for women of her time. She lived in this little tiny mountain village, uh, but yet she really adored Queen Frederica. And for me to be able to share that, with Queen Frederica's grandson was just really, really meaningful to me. And I think made the idea of somehow digging in and and telling this story even more meaningful to me. Yeah, it seems you 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 write what you know, and and you've definitely uh, done that. Um, and you know, speaking in those terms, can you talk more about the island of Corfu? I know your your descriptions are incredibly beautiful and eloquent. And I think that's what a lot of readers love about this novel. Um, did that just come naturally because it, it just is so beautiful there? Yeah. So I always see Corfu as a main character in my books. This is my third book um, that is set on Corfu. Uh, and Corfu is the home of many, many generations of my own family. And, you know, my I, I'm a New Yorker, born and bred here, um, but I am a first generation Greek American and Corfu is also my home. And I, um, I just, I love the island. If you've, anyone who's been fortunate enough to visit, you just know how magical and ethereal Corfu is. Um, it's incredibly special. And on Corfu, 
again, kind of an all all sort of different lines, kind of all roads lead back to Corfu as far as I'm concerned. But on Corfu, the Greek royal family had a summer villa, Mon Repos, which is just outside of Corfu town. The villa still stands. It's actually a museum. It was renovated and opened as a museum, uh, I believe, in the late 1990s. Um, Anyway, um, so the Greek royal family, Queen Frederica, would spend her time with her family on Corfu. And Mon Repos is actually the birthplace of Prince Philip, Queen Elizabeth's husband, Prince Philip, who many also don't know that Prince Philip is of Greek descent and actually was born on the dining room table at the villa of Mon Repos in Corfu. So to explore that little known aspect of Greek history and invite people in to not only learn about the Greek his, the history of the Greek royal family, as well as, you know, make Corfu that main character and introduce readers to not only the beauty, the just incredible natural beauty of the island, but to sort of the ethereal beauty as well, to introduce readers to St. Spiridon, who is the patron saint of Corfu, that anyone from Corfu will tell you, we still believe that St. Spiridon conducts, you know, miracles and protects people with ties to Corfu. Um, at Mon Repos, the villa, um, the beautiful villa where Prince Philip was born, there is a water fountain, um, a freshwater spring that dates back to Venetian times called Kardaki. And there's the legend of Kardaki is that if anyone takes a sip from Kardaki, you're destined to always return back to beautiful Corfu, you know, our, our magical Greek uh, green island in the Ionian. So there are so many myths and legends to explore that I never run out of things to write about and kind of, you know, show off about our beautiful island. And that's very much how I feel about it. I feel like I'm always kind of showing her off um, because it is, Corfu is just a magnificent, really special place. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And I'm just adding it to my travel list. I think I'll I'll have to go sometime. Please do. It's, uh, you know, this is my third book uh, set in Corfu. My first was another novel, When the Cypress Whispers. My second is a memoir about how, um, called Something Beautiful Happened, which was the story of how I searched for and found the family, the Jewish family that my grandmother helped hide and save on our little tiny island of Eriquisa, which is just off the coast of Corfu during the Holocaust. And in that book, I explored, again, very little known history of the Greek Jews during the Holocaust. And most people don't even know that Greek Jews exist. And, you know, a lot of people don't even know that the Nazis occupied Greece during the war. So that was, you know, really meaningful for me to be able to explore that aspect of Corfu's history and introduce readers to another little known aspect of Greek and Corfu history. Um, And, you know, with this book, I just, you know, if I could just keep writing and introducing readers to, you know, more of Corfu's history, I will be a very, very happy writer. Well, I'm curious, you have a background in journalism. Did you always know that you wanted to write fiction? Uh, You know, I think I, like so many people, always wondered, you know, do I have a book in me? Could I ever write a book? And, you know, I write and tell stories for a living. I'm a journalist. I've been a, you know, journalist my entire career. And I always focused on telling other people's stories. And then, you know, one day I kind of, you know, asked myself the question more seriously of like, okay, you know, do I have a book in me? Could I write a book? And maybe it's time to start telling my own stories. And, 
that was kind of like the, you know, kind of the catalyst for me to really sit down and try. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, write what you know. And, you know, I asked a lot of people what their advice was, and I kept coming back to write what you know. And I leaned in and I was like, okay, well, what do I know? I know what it is to be a first generation Greek American, you know, to be so proud of being an American and, you know, a native New Yorker, like a fierce New Yorker. Uh, And on the other hand, also be so proud that I have these beautiful, you know, deep roots in Greece and on Corfu. And I tried to find a way to sort of marry the two. Um, And I really leaned into my Greek American family and history um, and with my first and then second and now with this book, too. And, you know, I just uh, I really I find great satisfaction. Uh, I'm really happy that I finally stopped and took the time to, you know, try to tell my own story. And, uh, and I hope, and so far readers have responded and that has been incredibly rewarding. Yeah. And, and you've definitely kind of established a, a style and a, an audience that, that knows what, what, you know, the, the topic and the, the, the time periods, the place you'll be writing about. But, um, what was it like for you along the way? Did, did you face a lot of I mean, was it easy for you to, to write fiction or did, did you experience some bumps and bruises, some trial and error, that kind of thing? Oh, my God. Bumps and bruises and trials and errors. And I mean, and you name it. You know, it was not easy. It was it was not easy in any way, shape or form. But, you know, as as we said, I am a Greek American journalist and I defy you to find you know, anyone more tenacious or stubborn than a Greek American journalist, right? That's just kind of the definition of Greek American journalist, uh, all in one. And I, you know, with my first book, I, I never, I never studied writing novels. Um, I, I read Stephen King's book on writing. Um, I read Bird by Bird by Aunt Lamont. Um, and, I, you know, I just said, okay, let me sit down and try to do this. And it just, it was trial and error. And, um, I didn't have a blueprint. I just wrote, I just wrote and I wrote from the heart. Um, and it took about two years of writing for me to write my first book and then about another year of editing. And then about three years of the most brutal rejections probably that <laughs> that you could imagine. Uh, it was awful. It was awful. I had, you know, three years of really difficult rejection letters. And after three years, I put that book away. I put it in a drawer and I said, okay, that was just, you know, several wasted years of my life. No one will ever read this. And then I met this one agent who turned out to this one woman, Nina Madonia, who was with Dupree Miller who didn't really handle fiction. She only handled nonfiction. But I mentioned when I met her, oh, you know, I wrote this book and I don't know. And she said, well, send it to me. Let me take a look. And that was it. You know, it took one person to believe in me and change my life uh, and open up this this door for me that I am just feel so lucky and so blessed. Um, and I say this all the time, you know, I love what I do. I love these stories. And I'm so grateful that readers respond to them and, and, have really, you know, taken my books to heart. And I get the most beautiful letters from people who, you know, get my books and who my books move them. And that is so rewarding. Um, 
you know, but at the same point, it was really, it was hard. It was a lot of hard work. And I know there are a lot more talented writers out there and incredible writers out there, but I think the difference maybe between me and them is that tenacity. And I, I kept going, you know, and I almost stopped, but I still kept going. And I think that's the key for anyone who wants to write a book, who's thought about writing a book, who would hope to maybe one day write a book, just keep at it. Never give up. Never, ever, ever, ever give up. Just keep at it. Um, because had I given up, you know, that first book would be still sitting in a drawer, but instead it was published by, you know, I, I was, it was purchased by my dream editor um, and ended up being an international bestseller and published in 16 different languages. And, you know, I never could have imagined that that would happen. Um, never give up. That's all I can say. Not an easy road, but definitely worth it. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And um, it's great to, a good reminder. All of those things are great reminders. Um, you talk about how rewarding it is. Um, I'm curious because you, you, you are such a talented person. You are a three-time Emmy award-winning journalist. What accomplishment are you most proud of? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I will tell you what I'm most proud of. Hands down, I am most proud of um, the subject matter that led to my second book, Something Beautiful Happened. Um, as I mentioned, my my grandmother was one of a group of islanders who hid and saved a Jewish family, hid and saved a Jewish family um, from the Nazis on our little tiny island of Ediquissa off the coast of Corfu during World War II. And I set out to find the family my grandmother saved. Um, none of us knew what happened to them after the war. We knew the family survived. And there were four girls um, and, and, a, and a father, Savas. Actually, three daughters, their dad, Savas, and a cousin, a little girl named Rosa. And while they all survived the war and everyone on the island risked their lives to save them, we no one knew what happened to them afterwards. They just... They, we thought they went back to Israel, but we didn't know anything. And I, you know, and I, I thought about my grandmother's story so much. And then I thought about the fact that, wow, you know, this entire island risked everything to save this family. That's not just like a little story to be shared from like a grandmother to a granddaughter. That's history. It really hit me when I stopped to think about it, that, you know, history does not exist only in, in dusty textbooks, right, handed out in a classroom. History, there's history in our homes and there's history in our family and in our stories. And I knew that what my grandmother did, and not just my grandmother, the entire island who worked together, about 200 people at the time, to save this family at, at the risk of being annihilated themselves by the Nazis, I knew that was important history. So I set out on a years-long search to find this family and see what they knew or what they had learned about my grandmother and the Islanders. And it took years and years of searching and I finally found them. And as I mentioned earlier about the trauma of Holocaust survivors, when I found the families, um, I found two sons in Israel of one of the girls. And then I found a granddaughter uh, and, a, and a stepmother, uh, a stepdaughter, sorry, in Los Angeles. And when I contacted them, none of them had any idea what I was talking about because the survivors of the Holocaust were so traumatized that by the time the war was over and they got to Israel and they were told, your life begins today, don't look back, only look forward, 
you know, forget what you went through, forget the trauma, your life begins today. They really took this to heart and they never told their families how they survived the Holocaust. They never told their families that my grandmother risked her life and the lives of her own children in order to hide and save them. They had no idea that an entire island risked everything. The Nazis were on the island searching door to door for this family and not one person on the island gave it up. So finding this family, um, filling in the missing pieces of their family's history uh, was really the most rewarding thing um, and unexpected because I never imagined so many incredible things to happen. Um, that was really, I think, what I'm, without a doubt, what I'm most proud of. We were then able to bring them back to Greece so they could see the island where their mothers were saved. We had a reunion with some of the survivors who were there at the time. Um, the little tiny island of Ediquisa was awarded the Raoul Wallenberg International House of Life. Um, and I mean, it's just, it's just been an amazing experience. And the perhaps most rewarding of all is that I'm really, really close with the family. I've gone back to Israel, um, to have Shabbat dinner with them in their homes. We've been at a bar mitzvah together at the Western wall for the great grandson of one of the women that was saved. So it's been, um, the most rewarding and, and meaningful thing that I could imagine. Yeah, that's so wonderful to make such a, a real impact like that. It was sounds like it was definitely a worthwhile effort on your part. Oh, yeah. I mean, just amazing. I, I can't even put it into words. Well, I, I don't want to end the interview without asking you about another of your talents. Uh, you say that you have a love of food and cooking are in your Greek woman DNA. Um, are you just, yes, a, indeed. <laughs> just a, a, a great chef as well? Uh, I don't know if I'm a great chef, but I do love to cook. Um, you know, to grow up in a Greek household or have Greek friends or even just have met a Greek person, you know, you know that it, it, we're all about food and family and celebrations. And I think one of the reasons is, you know, for most Greeks, you know, most villagers and islanders, you know, for the most part, they're very simple people, you know, not a lot of money. Um the women up until, you know, maybe about 50 years ago or so were not, you know, very well educated. And so the way that that Greek women and Greek families kind of showed their love for one another, it was through food, mostly in their gardens or what they caught in their nets or, or you know, their own livestock. And it was really the way that they came together and shared um, and showed love and celebrated and you know, I'm very, very, very proud to be part of of this rich history of Greek women who love to cook and love to celebrate and love to have a house full of people. Um, you know, it just, I find it joyous. It's funny because some of my friends, you know, love to eat, but they don't really love the cooking part. And I'm like, that's, but that's part of it. For me, it's creative. It's just another form of, of you know, of creating something, of sharing something. Um, so I love the cooking and I love Definitely love the food. Definitely love the food. Yeah. Well, Yvette, thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, congratulations on all your success. And thank you for sharing these really important stories. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure and I'm really honored. So thank you.
difficult and dark moment in Greece's history. Many say the most difficult. I should lower that. I'm so sorry. Did you hear that ping? Yeah. I just lowered that. Sorry. Do you want to? I just took. I just muted that. Do you want me to stay, to take that from the top? Uh, yeah. I, I I won't restate the question, but you know, just start the answer over again if you could. 